Pharmaceutical representatives are not going away. Is that all bad? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. William Gallanter. Dr. Gallanter is the medical director of the Clinical Information Systems, and he's the chairman of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, both at the University of Illinois Medical School in Chicago. Dr. Gallanter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, a great deal of attention over the last couple decades have been paid to the relationship between pharmaceutical representatives and the physician. Can you tell me your opinion of where we stand with this particular ongoing relationship? I think the relationship has evolved. Personally, when I started practicing, I thought it was a normal part and parcel of becoming a doctor is to have this relationship with representatives. And obviously, it was a very good relationship because it provided social activities and income. And at the time, I thought it provided a lot of education. And as I've practiced maybe over the last 10 or 15 years and I've learned more about it, I've somewhat changed my mind and felt that it's probably not a very healthy relationship. And I think more and more other people are feeling that this also is probably not a healthy relationship and there's been an evolution of this relationship. Well, the relationship isn't going to go away. First of all, can you tell me what is the negative about it? Well, I think the main point is that pharmaceutical representatives are basically there to sell drugs and that is not necessarily a good thing for the patient unless it just happens to be by chance that a new branded medication happens to be the best medication for your patient, which is usually not the truth. So in general, I'd say it's generally harmful to patients. Well, what can be done to improve it? I believe there is $19 billion being spent on supposed education. Is this marketing or is it education? And if it's education, what can we do to upgrade it where it meets the needs of the very busy physician? Well, I would first argue that it's purely marketing. I think no industry would spend that much money on education alone, and I think it's just purely marketing. And I'm not sure that what we can do to upgrade that particular amount of money to improve its education. I think that the job of the pharmaceutical industry is to market the newer, expensive, branded medicines that they make money on and to try to get us, the doctors, to use those medications so that they make more money. And I think it's only education in the sense if they find any little snippets of information that might argue that point for them, then it might become education. Well, how do we evaluate the material that's given to us? Certainly, I've always had difficulty interpreting trials. I often, when I get an article, will actually skip the whole subject or paragraphs on method because I'm not statistically knowledgeable. What can we do about evaluating material that's given to us? I think we need to improve our medical education. I think there's been a explosion. If you look at a graph of the amount of papers that have been published over the last 15 or 20 years, like the rest of technology and information, there's just been an exponential explosion. And I think the average doctor actually can't keep track anymore. So I think we need to spend a lot more time with our doctors in training and our doctors who are practicing about how to look at articles so that they don't have to spend as much time to find an article that's probably not going to be useful for them. And then the second thing is that I think that doctors need to more rely upon guidelines and quote-unquote expert panels and government-designed practice guidelines so that we don't have to read all the papers, because I would agree with you that it's absolutely impossible to keep up with the literature. So you would say that the literature that we're being given in our offices or in clinics is biased. 
is there some way we can ask representatives or the pharmaceutical industry to give us a balanced presentation of their drugs? I actually asked once because I had a friend of mine who's a representative. First of all, I'd like to say that I don't personally have anything against representatives. I don't clearly love all the companies, but a friend of mine who was a representative, I said, why don't you give us more balanced information, and then maybe I'd feel that you do a better job on education. And what she informed me was that her supervisors tell her exactly what she is allowed to give and what she's not allowed to give. So I don't think it's inside the wherewithal of the representatives to decide what papers they're going to distribute and what papers they're not going to distribute. Would you then say it's better to have no information at all? In my opinion, from them, I think it's better to have no information at all And then I think it would be better for clinicians to have to get their own information with more reliable sources. So we're getting to another question. How is a learner to search the literature to make his own opinions in his very, very busy day? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think that's somewhat of a failure of medical education that we really need to teach our doctors how to get useful information. And I think doctors need to learn about study design They need to know about the quality of different magazines. They need to learn about quality of a particular design as far as whether that's going to bear on a particular question that they have. And I think this is a complicated business, and I don't think we probably spend enough of medical education on it. So it begins in the academic environment. In other words, is it fair for the academic environment to ask students and then later physicians, look, I'd like some negative studies. Are there any done? on your particular drug and area of expertise? Oh, I think that would be absolutely fair, but I think the answer is going to be that they're not allowed to get those studies. So what I would say to clinicians, if they're going to be giving papers by representatives, first of all, I'm I'm at the moment pretty much completely against that, but if they do get papers from representatives, what they need to do is go on their own and look for the whole realm of papers in that field and then see if they can find their own balance And I think doctors are just way too busy, so you you still get to the point with the major chronic diseases where you really want to look for practice guidelines and consensus statements. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Gallanter, who is the medical director and chair of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee at the University of Illinois Medical Center in Chicago. And we're talking about a possible improvement in the model that we sometimes see in pharmaceutical representatives' relationships with physicians. Well, how can we change this particular model? Is there anything being done in the academic world or by the pharmaceutical industry itself that change this model that's under attack from so many areas? Well, I think there's a lot being done. The Association of American Medical Colleges, AAMC, actually just came out with a consensus statement I think sometime in the last six months, and to be honest, they haven't completed reading the entire thing, but it was very negative about the process and basically saying that we need to keep our medical students and our medical schools away from the pharmaceutical representatives, basically saying it would be a very untenable situation to say that you could get fair representative education under the present set of rules. And I haven't completed reading the entire outline, but it's actually fairly negative and suggests that we really need to withdraw our students away from this source of information and just admit that it's not a good source of information. I think that on the side of the corporations, 
They've been caught with their pants down quite a bit in the last four or five years, breaking all different types of rules, which they themselves agree are legitimate rules. So I think they're beginning now to try to police themselves much more carefully because they look very bad every time a company has to settle with the government over off-label marketing or inappropriate advertising. It makes them look bad. So I think they certainly do not want to be caught looking bad. So I think they're beginning to police themselves also. There's even been some talk about ghost authors and trials and their interpretations and even peer review. You know, we rely on our peers to review articles that we're reading. Is that a reliable thing for us to do? Sadly, I think since there's been an explosion of papers, it's very, very difficult. I personally do peer review. But every time that something is offered to me to review, I don't accept it. And a lot of it has to do with my own personal life. How much time do I have? Am I working on my own projects? Because to actually do a good peer review of a good article is actually fairly time-consuming, and you get very little benefit. Interestingly, some of the journals are now giving continuing medical education for peer review, which I really enjoy because most of the states now are requiring continuing medical education. So luckily, I'm doing more peer review because I'm getting continuing medical education for it. But peer review is very, very difficult. And the magazines have a very, very difficult job. They have editors. They have their own statistical analysts. But without good peer review, you're not going to get you know, an excellent product at the end. You know, you bring up an interesting subject, CME. But isn't a lot of CME driven by pharmaceutical industry? Over 50%, I think, believe it or not, right now, is driven by the pharmaceutical industry. And that's another difficulty we have. On the one hand, we have the government, state boards, saying that we want our doctors to do X amount of CME over a period of time, and yet that CME is very expensive and difficult to come by. So the only way that most people can really get it in a cost-effective way is to get it from drug companies. And I think that's extremely problematic And I'm not sure where the government or the pharmaceutical industry is going in that road, but I think you bring up an excellent point. You know, you bring up that educational institutions are creating a restrictive policy. At your particular school, and there are others, what form does this policy take as far as dealing with hospital representatives who want to get to the young doctor who's early on in his training? What we did at our institution is, as chair of the P&T committee, myself and members of the pharmacy that were interested in this, we felt that we had the right to restrict the access of pharmaceutical sales representatives to our clinicians in areas where they're practicing medicine, because that, I think, from the beginning is a non-starter. I think it's very disrespectful to patients if you have pharmaceutical sales representatives and doctors and patients together in the same location. I think that's inherently unethical. So what we did is basically said that's not going to happen. So we actually disallowed pharmaceutical representatives to be in any area where patients and doctors are together. But we felt somewhat restricted in that this is a large University of Illinois at Chicago is a large medical center, and there's a lot that goes on here that just isn't patient care. So now we've kind of given over the control of this policy. We have our own policy. Let me restate that. Our policy stands, but we'd like stronger policies, but we need the deans of the medical school, the nursing school, the pharmacy school, the heads of graduate medical education to begin to make their own policies. Because as it stands now at our medical school, I don't believe that we have a policy that actually tells our students what they should be doing with pharmaceutical representatives at night. Should they go to dinner with them? Are they allowed to socialize with them? Are they allowed to receive things from them? I don't think that we have a school-wide policy that says that, and I think that's really necessary. 
I think the double AMC is trying to provide guidance to the medical schools so that becomes an easier job to do so each school doesn't have to make its own policy. With so much money being spent in this area and so important for the pharmaceutical industry to continue to thrive by marketing these drugs, I think it's a problem that we're going to have to continue to face. It may be up to our academic institutions to prepare our young learners how to make this relationship work and be successful. I want to thank Dr. William Gallanter, who's been our guest today. Dr. Gallanter is the medical director of the Clinical Information Systems and the chairman of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. He's given us a real insight into what universities are doing to deal with this problem. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, please visit us at reachmd.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Again, thank you very much for listening.